Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to another edition of The Best of Mornings with Matt White right here on SEN. A great first week back for Matty White to start 2023, so thank you all for listening. On Monday, the Raw's rugby editor, Christy Doran, joined us for the breaking news on Dave Rennie being sacked as Wallabies coach. As I mentioned, Christy Doran's all over this one for the raw.com.au, the rugby union editor at the Raw, and he's on the line. Good morning, Christy. This is a, a big, big announcement, a big shock too. Look, it is, but at the same time, there'd been um, a sense that change was coming for some time. You know, right back middle of November when the Wallabies suffered a, a historic maiden defeat to Italy, it was that point in time where the Rugby Australia board was shaken, and they were, you know, a lot of these people come from business backgrounds, uh, and when you get a defeat like that, first time ever to Italy, it really rattled a lot of the Rugby Australia board. Uh, a narrow defeat shortly after to Ireland and a, a saving grace victory against Wales. I thought Dave Rennie would survive, but the moment that Eddie Jones was sacked by England at the start of December, it was that point in time where we went, OK, right, well, Rugby Australia's been talking to Eddie Jones for a long time. Why not bring him in? They've ultimately decided to pounce on this, on him, bring the Australian back, particularly noting that there's a British and Irish Lions series in 25 and a home World Cup in 2027. The Rugby Australia board wanted him for those two tournaments specifically, but now they've brought him six months, well, really eight months before that, um, to supercharge their, their World Cup campaign in, in France later this year. And to bring him back, there's no way in the world that they could have essentially given Eddie Jones's personality and position and given Dave Rennie's position there was no way that it could work as, as a meeting of the minds together for the World Cup. It had to be one or the other, didn't it? It's interesting. When Eddie Jones had an interview with The Guardian about a week and a half ago where he said he's not an assistant. I'm not an assistant, mate, he said. And then shortly after on Monday, a day after I'd written that his, Dave Rennie is in talks with Japan, in, in, in Japan in the, in the League One competition there, he said look, it's not going to happen when it was put to him, would you work with Eddie Jones if he comes on earlier? Um, it's, it's, oh, it meant Rugby Australia and the board members there were going to themselves, well, hang on, why wouldn't you want some expertise, someone who's been to three World Cup campaigns as a head coach and a fourth with South Africa where you've won a gold medal, you've been at two World Cups, We've got to remember here, Scott Wisemantle, the highly respected assistant coach, yeah. just finished up a week earlier where he resigned. And he was the only assistant in that coaching structure that had actually been to a World Cup. So Rugby Australia was shocked, flabbergasted, when they heard that Dave Rennie had essentially shut down any prospect of working with, with Eddie Jones. As it turns out, a, a week later, and, and he's been sacked, he'll be paid out, he'll be put on gardening leave, um, but he won't be able to go to any other nation before the World Cup. Wow. Okay. Now, there was a four-day camp on the Gold Coast as well for the players, and that's that was, what, a week ago. So it kind of begs the question, I mean, you've got to go through with what you've got on the list, right, what you've got on your calendar. 
but the players certainly would have known about it. It was public knowledge that RA was talking, Rugby Australia was talking to Eddie Jones. So the players would have got wind of something going on. Was there any whispers around this this camp up there on the Gold Coast that things were changing quickly? And, and it kind of begs the question, why go through with it with the Dave Rennie in charge? Well... <sighs> Players aren't stupid. Um, a lot of them, seasoned players, guys like Nick White, Michael Hooper, they've been around the, the traps. Um, they may have thought, um, and I know that there are some players who thought that, hey, we reckon Eddie Jones will come in. But this was three, four weeks ago. This was before Christmas. After Christmas, I think they thought, okay, well, we've got to this camp, nothing's happened. And there was a bit of an, an idea that, okay, well, if it hasn't happened yet, it might not happen. But you know, maybe he does join as a technical consultant. Uh, maybe he does join in the in the, um, or they make the announcement that he will join following the World Cup. But I still think they've come down. Rugby Australia has made the decision. Who is more likely to get us to a semi-final at this point in time? And it's probably you could say with a bit more authority, maybe Eddie Jones. When he took over from England, England had won their final pool match of the World Cup, but didn't make. The, the knockout stages in 2015. Eddie Jones then comes on, replaces Stuart Lancaster. They win the next 17 matches and they equal the record of 18 against New Zealand. We saw, uh, what, almost eight years ago, Michael Checker jump on board before the 2015 World Cup and he then takes charge of the Wallabies. They make it through to a World Cup final. So uh, there has been um, a short history anyway that, that shows that, uh, turnarounds are possible. Um, but I, I still think that RA, they wanted to lock and pin Eddie Jones down so that he can be the coach for the Wallabies in the, in the Lions series of 25 and, and the Home World Cup in 27. And, he, and Jones not only has extremely good coaching pedigree, he was sacked by England despite having a 73 winning percentage, which is the highest of any England coach. But he also will attract headlines. He will attract headlines from start to finish, go to woe. And you won't see that with England, but we know that uh, now with Stuart Lancaster, and they're probably going to struggle at stages, I'd, I'd imagine. Um, but here in Australia, when you're competing with rugby league, the NRL, the AFL, having Eddie Jones be able to bring pedigree um, and the ability to, to attract a headline is a hugely important thing as well. This close to a Rugby World Cup, the plans were there and laid out and, and Eddie Jones lamented that fact that he didn't get to follow those plans through in the English rugby union system as head coach of England. So he's got those secret. He's got those plans. They, they shouldn't change too much under the new coach over there. So that's one thing that he's got in the top drawer when he takes over this job as the Wallabies. Why do you think Rugby Australia thinks that Eddie Jones will work this time around and Dave Rennie wasn't going to work? Well, Dave Rennie's winning percentage is 38%. It's the lowest of all time from a Wallabies coach who's coached more than 30 matches. And uh, they're the hardline facts. There's a few draws thrown in there, but, uh, and, and other people will point to the fact that, oh, yes, there was a record amount of injuries last year that the Wallabies had to use 51 players that Quade Cooper wasn't there for all, but... Uh, it, it, you know, 47 minutes. Um, Samu Karevi missed the bulk of it. They only narrowly lost in Paris and Dublin. But at the end of the day, the Wallabies hadn't been able to convert close defeats into victories. Eddie Jones has proven to be able to do that. Um, I've already expressed the, the 18 matches that they ended up equaling 
the the World Cup. No, sorry, the the record um, uh, streak there. But he also made a World Cup final in 2019. Um, did Eddie Jones, and that's mm. not long ago. Um, he's won 10 of 11 matches against the Wallabies when he's been in charge of England. Uh, he came from a, a two from one nil to, uh, down in Perth to to win a, another historic 2-1 series victory in Australia. Uh, they won 3 nil in Australia in 2016 against the Wallaby side that had just made the World Cup final. Um, Jones has the ability to get players to reach their ceilings. And we saw that when he took over from Lancaster, a very similar squad, but made a couple of subtle changes. A new captain, a new hooker, um, and he empowered some of the players. He simplified the game plan, yet they managed to, to, to win with a side that had failed to make the knockout stages of the Home World Cup. They're some of the things that have really attracted Rugby Australia. Can he work? Has he softened? He was sacked, in, of course, in 2005 after a pretty disastrous year. But I'll tell you what, like, a lot of play, a lot of people, a lot of players, they get better when they've overcome adversity. And uh, we know even you know going back and even politics, a completely different realm. You know, Robert Menzies didn't last very long in his <laughs> first one, and his second stage back, he did. So they're going to be hoping for a similar sort of thing, Rugby Australia. Yeah, there's a saying, the train doesn't stop twice. Well, it has for Eddie Jones, and it will this time around. A final one for you. Does this put any current Wallabies, Wallabies players on notice in the frame? Should any of the current Wallabies players be worried or, or, or the vice versa side of that by the fact that Eddie Jones is now going to be in charge as opposed to Dave Rennie? Well, Eddie Jones, is one thing I know for sure is he thinks that there's enough talent in Australia. There's no doubt about that. Um, I, I think Tate McDermott, who's been in and out of the side, given limited opportunities, from my understanding, he's a big Tate McDermott fan. I also understand he likes Fraser McWright. Um, Sully Vunavalu, he must be someone who now rockets back into contention for the Wallabies because he, Vunavalu played two and a half minutes under, under Dave Rooney. He didn't make the 44-person training squad, which is extraordinary for a two-time... NRL Premiership winner, a try-scoring machine. And we know that Eddie Jones has a strong affiliation and respect for the for Rugby League. And you look back at the 03 World Cup when there was Takiri, Sailor, Rogers, um, more recently with England, a Benteo, um, uh, who, who took part from 16, 17, 18, before kind of falling out of favour there. Uh, I think Vunavalu is probably the biggest headline name that will come back into the uh, selection reckoning. It's a big story, Christy. Appreciate your time this morning. You can read all about it on theraw.com.au. We'll continue to chat through this one because there's more to come. Good on you, mate. Thanks for your time this morning. Thanks, Matt. Cheers. Christy Doran there, uh, great friend of the show, rugby union editor at theraw.com.au, and he points out this morning in his article that there is a five-year deal that has been signed by Eddie Jones. He will be in charge of both the Wallabies and the Wallaroos, and not only the Rugby World Cup, but the perfect figure that Rugby Australia believed to lead the Wallabies during that home line series in 2025 and the 2027 World Cup. So it's a big one, and as soon as Eddie Jones was let go by the English Rugby Football Union, things were put in process straight away. Remarkable, isn't it? It wasn't too long ago that Jones was in charge... Anthony Seabold was his defensive coach. Seabes is now in charge 
down there at Brookvale in charge of the Manly Warringah Seagulls. And Jones returns to the Australian coaching staff. Eddie, jo- Eddie Jones back. Dave Rennie is out in the garden. Let me know your thoughts about that. 0457 736 736. On Tuesday, Dan Walsh from the Sydney Morning Herald provided the latest on the RLPA boycott against the NRL. And I'll also want your opinions on the back of this chat that I'm about to have with Dan Walsh from the Sydney Morning Herald about the situation of the players versus headquarters and the possibility of a player boycott at the season launch, everything else that's going on because they're starting to make some rumbles around the fact they don't like the situation they're in and they're taking it up to NRL headquarters by stepping away from media commitments with their own website. So let's hook into this a little bit deeper. Dan is on the line. Good morning to you, Dan, and thanks for your time this morning. Can you give us a snapshot of where we're at at the moment in this tit-for-tat debate? Uh, so obviously the uh, you know, the CBA talks have stalled, stalled and stalled again over the course of more than 12 months now. And yeah, the players, with the backing of the Players Association, of course, have uh, yeah, taken their next step is what they see fit. And they've basically said, uh, as of yesterday, that they won't be engaging with anyone to do with the NRL until something gets sorted at the negotiation table. So from a media perspective, that means that uh, it was a... I'm told it was all played out quite politely and cordially yesterday, but you had an NRL team turn up to Cronulla yesterday morning and Wade Graham telling them that, uh, no, as employees of the NRL, we won't be working with you uh, today because, uh, yeah, we're trying to get something done with your employers and we don't like the way they're going about it. So it's escalated a little bit. Um, The idea is that it doesn't impact fans, which is why the the Players Association has always said, you know, we haven't, uh, boycotted Origin or finals or anything like that. We didn't pick up a stink last year during games, but they see this as a way of getting their message through to the NRL rather than hitting the actual fans during trials or games or whatever comes next. So you pointed out what happened at the Sharks. We also know what happened at the Dragons. The Storm and the Panthers have already said that they won't be doing their media requests today and when we say media as you point out this is the nrl.com media so it's from within the nrl but i reckon the word that you just said there dan is is key to all this the escalation of it so this is a slight escalation in this battle which therefore means that there should be more to come so how how does this end (laughs) maddie Hopefully soon is the answer, and hopefully with a CBA. Uh, all parties are, you know, personally sick of talking about it and writing about it. But uh, the, the 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 players have got. Uh, it's not to do, and I guess the key to put it put across here is it's not about pay. The salary cap that is there, the players, they're all right with that figure and what's been arrived at there. It's the other elements around it that they're agitating for to get sorted out. Things like uh, match payments for you know, your very lower tier, lower paid guys being excluded from the cap. Things like a retired players fund and also the women's uh, issues. The women's area is a big issue as well. They're still waiting on any sort of clarity on what happens next with more teams coming in. They don't know what they're working towards in terms of 
uh, their workplace rules and that sort of thing. So that's the other area that keeps getting forgotten in this, but it is something the players' union is driving as well. That women sorting out the women's game is a big issue for them. Yeah, and the players have said that the salary cap announcement doesn't resolve any of the issues that they want to put on the table. Kurt Capewell said we didn't ask for a salary cap without a CBO. So that's the bigger picture. And I guess everyone, Dan, understands that. And this might seem small on the Richter scale of of what players can do to upset the NRL. And they are pointing out, as you said, that they don't want to impact the fans. How does, however, what they're doing at the moment impact the game, impact the NRL, and possibly impact the fans in terms of the information that they can get from the from the website, from the official website, heading into the season and when the season gets started? Well, uh, there'll just be, there'll be a lot less information there, to be honest. So no, be no headshots. Content. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no headshots, yeah, which uh, I'm sure you know as well as I, mate. If you're trying to identify um, someone new, those are quite handy. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it, like I said, it is um, kind of the next step here, and it's we'll see how it plays out today in terms of an NRL response to it and where it goes forward, because, it, frankly, it's a situation you can't have for too long at all. Uh, the NRL would know that and the players' unions are aware of that. So it is, you do expect something to progress at the negotiation table soon, but we've also been hoping for, we were hoping to have something sorted by Christmas. So yeah, it's a matter of getting something done and it should be number one priority at the moment. If the season launch comes around and they haven't sorted this out, how embarrassing is that going to look for the game if the players don't turn up? Oh, can you remember it ever happening in uh, mm. anywhere, any other sport? Yeah. Uh, it was slightly before my time, but uh, I cast back to 2003 when the players boycotted the Dally Ends. And uh, obviously that conversation's come up before and it's certainly remembered because Craig Gower went without the Dally End medal that year. So there is there are, there are further steps they can take uh, and you just hope it doesn't come to that. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a watch and see, this one. Uh, it, it seems like a bit of a storm in a key, uh, teacup, Dan. This is the thing. I'm trying to get my head around how significant this action is. At the moment, it's not, but I get the feeling that there might be more to come. And I always wonder if the players really want to have a crack at this, if they really want to take a stand, they're going to have to take some pretty drastic action. And I, I wonder what that is and what the impact of that will be. So we'll have to wait and see. While I've got you a couple of other issues on the rugby league table, as we know, Stephen Crichton said to the Panthers, and this is going to be my final season, everybody seems to think it's a fait accompli. The Bulldogs are going to get the job done. What are you hearing? Uh, yeah, uh, very much out of, well, out of left field for Penrith and uh, I guess most of the rugby league world, assuming that... Uh, that those negotiations would continue a little bit because, uh, as as I understand it, uh, Penrith were gearing up to um, resume those talks with Stephen and put forward something um, pretty soon. And uh, as as the conversation went on Sunday night between him and Ivan Cleary, he said, uh, "Unfortunately, mate, my mind's made up. I'll be going elsewhere." And as I've written today in the Herald, and I, as you said, most are assuming it's the Bulldogs. His manager has denied the bull, that the that deal is fully done there. But uh, one of the other clubs that were interested, the Dolphins, they've been told he won't leave Sydney. Uh, and so it does kind of marry up in terms of 
all the attractions are there in terms of, uh, you know, you've got Matt Burton, Viliami Kikau, Cameron Seraldo at Penrith, uh, sorry, at Canterbury. And you can see it fitting. You can see fullback being an option there and you can see it as a club on the rise in terms of who they've recruited and, yeah, how the first coach goes. For Stephen Crichton, it looks pretty attractive. And talking of recruiting, Sam Burgess has been doing a bit of bit of work for the Bunnies here, trying to get Dominic Young across the line. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So Dom, Dominic Young, uh, he, I, in my book, he was one of the most improved players of the season last year. And we saw him at the World Cup scoring tries for England, uh, albeit against you know some of the minnows of the game. But there's no doubt that uh, I think he's almost 200 centimetres tall, 107 kilos. He's, he's a force out wide, and he's also on a small contract at the moment, reflecting the fact that he was effectively in a rookie year last year. So South are leading the pursuit of several clubs there. Again, I've heard the Dolphins have had a look, but uh, yeah, the Rabbitohs have rolled out the big guns, big Sammy, uh, doing some recruitment work for Jason Demetrio up there on the Gold Coast and in Byron Bay, meeting with Dom Young, and... Uh, yeah, the Knights, if they're going to keep him, they're going to have to stump up because, yeah, South are coming in pretty hard with a three-year deal, I'm told. Yeah, not a bad strategy. Unleash Big uh, big Sam to get the deal done. Good on you, Dan. Thanks for your time this morning. Thanks very much, Matty. Anytime. And on Thursday, Rugby League Players Association CEO Clint Newton discussed the ongoing CBA negotiations and standoff with Matty. Now, first up this morning, we are going to get straight into it. Rugby League Players Association boss, Clint Newton. Now, the battle between the players and the NRL, as we know, is continuing. The collective bargaining agreement is still not done. We're 42 days away from the start of the 2023 Premiership. At the moment, the players are taking a stand by refusing to do official NRL media calls. So at the start of the week... They started to say, we're not going to be there for photographs, nrl.com, we're not going to give you anything. Different for other media. Broadcast media is still getting access to players. But this is the first part of them taking a stand, and it's against head office. They haven't ruled out the possibility of further action. So what are the players really fighting for? Is strike action a possibility? Let's try and work our way through it this morning. Clint Newton is on the line. Clint, good morning. Morning, Matty. Okay, a lot of debate. First up, what are the sticking points at the moment between yourself and the NRL? Well, the major sticking points is there's obviously a shortfall in what the players are after from a quantum perspective. It's important to call out right up front that this isn't, it's not a pay war. It's not a pay dispute. Players are standing firm because they're going after the things that really we've never properly invested in. You know, and this is pretty much 100% of what, what the shortfall is, is all going towards past player and transitional support programs. I'll suggest that's a pretty noble intention from this group of players. So that, that's one where the shortfall is. Agreement rights on their core terms and conditions. Um, and th- these are largely all about just employment matters. So, for example, agreement rights over um, not lengthening the season and the number of matches that players play without their agreement. These are hours of work. These are obligations that players would have to be asked to carry out. So therefore, you would suggest that they're right, that they should have agreement over increasing hours of work, Um, not increasing fines and sanctions. Again, an agreement right in a workplace. Um, I think that that's pretty reasonable. Agreement rights over illicit drug policy. 
um, women, agreement rights over their pregnancy and parental leave policies. Um, they are all key employment terms and conditions. Uh, that, that's really some of the major sticking points that we're trying to get, get out there. The increase in terms of the salary cap, I mean, it was put out there by the NRL before Christmas and it's a big number. And regardless of how close to the actual number it's going to be, it's going to be an increase of quite a bit for the players, especially in year one. And a lot of people will say, well, anything thereafter, Clint, your players are being greedy. How do you respond to that? Again, it's a, it, was, it was a clear intention that it was done to try and create some sort of pay dispute and pay war. You know, pushing out that announcement on the 23rd of December without the players' agreement is the, is the same old tired narrative that, uh, that gets pushed around about greedy players. Um, and we've consistently said that the CBA is not about the salary cap, and our claims prove that. Again, it, it wouldn't matter if what we say. I've, I've seen this for 20 years. You know, I was there for the first CBA in 2003. I'm in there for this one now. It always gets positioned as a as a paywall, um, you know. Again, but players that that's just a tactic um, that's used, and we would suggest that just look in the detail. Uh, it's <laughs> the rhetoric is no substitute for reality, and pushing out that um, there's a lot of misinformation in that. Again, when you're pushing out salary cap numbers um, of that kind, they were comparing it to COVID reduced salaries, which is misleading. The top 30 salary cap was meant to be 10 million in 2022. So the jump to 11.45, which was the NRL's announcement, is only 14.5% increase. The NRL's revenues have gone up by 25.2% increase. So what players are asking for is to track in line with the NRL's revenue increases, which I think is pretty fair, you know, particularly given the fact that they're the ones that play and promote the game and they're taking on all the risks. But the devil is always in the detail because inside that 25% uh, increase that is being pushed out, there are a number of costs that weren't included in the last CBA that are now included in this one, such as private health insurance, tertiary education allowances, match fees uh, that, that used to sit outside the top 30 for those players. So again, what we're talking about here is there's been a big shift in the player, player behaviour for the first time in the history of the game, 120 years, players en masse have stood up, stepped forward, and they've taken action. Um, and it should, should tell you something, that the player unity, about the player unity and what this means for players and their families. And again, I think, you know, players aren't, they're not playing games here. You know, they want to make sure they are heard um, and they are respected. And that's how they feel. And, uh, and I'm incredibly proud of the playing group about what we represent. But and look, again, I, I don't think I don't think Clint that every that anybody anybody suggests that the players don't have a right to speak up and everybody I think also agrees that this is a complex and detailed situation but I reckon that there's a perception here that you're losing the public battle because the message is very muddled when it's trying to get across. We had Wade Graham on this on this station yesterday and it was difficult for for him to try and get across exactly what the players are standing for here. So can you summarise to those who are sitting there saying, hang on a second, I don't earn this money. I don't have this luxury of having the battle with my employers to say, this is what I want and I want extra payments and I want to look after my past employees. So how do you summarise that 
and get that public perception back on board to say that you are in the right fight at the right time? Well, again, I think that you've got to sometimes look beyond the bias, right? Uh, again, players are players are always going to be painted that way. But on this occasion, if you look into the detail, the players are foregoing um, a fairly significant amount to put into their salaries to, to pass back to past player programs and support services. Again, this has always been about making sure that we're taking the bottom-up approach. We were looking for increases in minimum wage to make sure that we're protecting our players at the bottom. We're looking at introducing match fees to make sure that if you played the game, you got paid. Um, just at, at just on that, rate. sorry, just on that, on the match mm-hmm. fees, that's one that jumps out. So if mm-hmm. I'm a player, I'm getting $500,000 a season. Why then do I get match payments as well? Because what we're trying to do is we're trying to equal, make it equal for players inside that play. So again, if I'm whether you're on that amount or whether you're on, you know, uh, at a minimum wage rate, is that it's a fee for service effectively. So what we're saying is that if you take the field and you play the game, then you you get remunerated for that, which is was always meant to be a bottom-up mentality of thinking. Uh, and we were hoping to ensure that we were able to mirror that across the women because, again, it's a fee for service and we're trying to say that, you know, if you're a rugby league player, you're a rugby league player at that elite level. So therefore, we were trying to ensure that players were paid equally for that for that rate. So, again, what we're saying is that when you when you push out the big number of the $1.3 billion versus the 980 from the last term, as I said, the devil's in the detail because the last CBA... Um, it was only we only covered about 600 players. In this one, we're talking about about a thousand. You know, so when you, when you increase at that rate, of course, the amount that's going to players is going to increase. Particularly when you're talking about the game's revenue going up at 25 percent. So should the players share of that? On a broader sense, we know what happened throughout COVID, and we know how perilous the situation of the game was. Um, Therefore, I think there's an understanding that the NRL's got to be very careful here about how much it hands over to any party, whether it be whether it be your party or anyone else. Where's the level of trust at in the meetings that you're having? Because we've had players say publicly that what's been going on behind closed doors has been um, misinformation that is therefore being delivered outside of the doors. So where's the level of trust in the meetings that you're having with the NRL and the NRL? Uh, having that level to be able to hand over some of these extra funds to you. Well, COVID was a was an interesting time, right? Because again, yes, the game was um, the game was on its knees. I mean, the the reality was the game didn't have enough funds to ensure they bailed out um, the clubs and the players and and the state um, and had enough money to invest in some of those programs. Players then. Um, uh, based on not the fact that they had to, they agreed to take pay cuts. And they took $100 million worth of pay cuts, or $98 million worth of that. That was their choice. They didn't have to. Um, they That money then went straight back into their clubs and was able to ensure, and you know, into the NRL's bank account, to be able to make sure that, that safeguarded them through that mm. time. What we then saw was the fact that over the last three years, the game has never been in a better financial position from a from a net cash position never than what it is right now um, and that's and that's pretty good considering the fact that we went through covid you know two or three years ago so again 
what the what the players did during that period, I think, was nothing short of outstanding. But again, Matt, like the players took those pay cuts, um, and just like many other people did, and unfortunately, it was a horrible time for many people. But that was done to help the clubs and mm. protect the game. So the where's where's the trust level at now, especially given that history? Well, the players the players feel like there is a lack of trust. You know, and and because there's a number of things that have played out over the last few years, but also there's some historical stuff that players are still struggling to get over. So, but you know, trust can be resolved via an, an, a great CBA, a strong CBA that we can all stand behind, and that's why this is really important for players to ensure that we do um, invest in these areas. We do properly support our NRLW players that right now can't sign any contract, they don't have that certainty. You know, picking up. You know, ensuring that they all have private health insurance, for example, is something critically important to them. So, again, um, a, a good CBA, a strong CBA that we can all be proud of, that trust can be restored and we can all move forward together. A couple of quick ones to finish on. The action that's currently being taken is directed against the NRL. So you've got players not turning up for headshots, essentially, for an NRL website. That's putting it very generally. What impact... First of all, do you think that's having? And then I want to ask you about how far it goes down the line. But the impact that you're having at the moment in terms of taking action against NRL media, NRL.com, for instance. Yeah, well, again, the the players didn't want to disrupt all the other parts of the media and they didn't want to disrupt, you know, um, you know, doing things for their clubs. So, again, the, the issue is, you know, the way that the players feel at the moment is directed really at the NRL. Um, the players don't feel like the NRL are listening. Um, and we've repeatedly said that players care more about, care, care way more about many other things than just the salary cap increase. And so, therefore, you would think that the NRL would have listened to that. The players don't feel comfortable participating in various media activities because we are run by the NRL because they've told us they don't feel like the NRL is respecting the importance of the CBA and what it means to them. Is strike Again, action, Clint, is strike action a consideration? Well, as, as the players have said, you know, all things are on the table at the moment. But again, Matt, this, this can be re- repaired. Uh, again, players, playing, playing games is, is for the fans to watch. This isn't a game for players. These are real people with uncertain futures and the players, they're no longer voiceless um, and they won't be. And I'm certainly not going to um, tell players to get in their box and put a muzzle on, particularly given the fact that this is something that they really deeply care about. Like I said up front, Matt, um, this, is, this is not a paywall. Uh, I, know, I know that's going to grab the headlines and everyone likes that because um, you know, it's all centred around demonising players and thinking that you're greedy. But I would suggest a very noble intention that these players are going after is the fact that the shortfall that they're picking up, they want to invest in past player programs and support services, like a medical, like the introduction of past player medical support fund, the introduction of a general hardship fund. So we're talking about there, Matt, past players that were not ever even captured in a CBA. The introduction, increasing in investment and support. That medical support fund is for players that suffer injury whilst they're playing Mm. because players don't have, they're not entitled to the workers' compensation legislation. So therefore, if you suffer an injury while working, you know, most people have that coverage. 
So what we're trying to do is establish a fund to ensure that if you suffer an injury whilst you play and it doesn't grab you in the first 12 months when you leave your NRL club, because that's the only time players can get surgeries covered for and compensated for, that if five years down the line you need a knee surgery, shoulder surgery, rehabilitation, that money goes towards those things. Again, I would suggest that's a pretty noble intention from this group of players. And again, that's you know very detailed information that's going to continue in these negotiations. So back to the fans, back to not wanting to impact the fans, and back to what you just said to me there, that everything's on the table. Could you rule out or you cannot rule out that there's any further action possible? Well, I can't, you can't rule out anything because this, the future is uncertain, Matt. Again, this is about ensuring that we we get the best possible deal for, for the men and men and women. So, again, we've got... There's a, still a number of weeks to go before the start of the season. What we want to do is ensure that we get back to the table, we work through it, and we try and resolve these matters. Again, there's enough there for everyone. There is enough there for everyone. And that's, that's what we're saying. Again, respect the players via ensuring that they receive these funds to invest in those areas, Agreement rights over core terms of employment and conditions, which I think is very fair and reasonable, and ensuring that we have, uh, you know, the best CBA, the first CBA for NRLW players, because, because right now they're in a total land of uncertainty, and we need to ensure that we come back to the table, we work through it, and we give everyone the certainty they all deserve, and we get on with playing rugby league. Now, over the next few weeks, Matt, more things may happen. But really, that's going to be down to how the NRL want to take things. You know, um, are they going to come back to the table and work through it? Are they going to respect players and give them a CBA that we can all be proud of? Um, we certainly hope so. Clint, thanks for your time this morning. No worries, Matt. On Friday, Rugby Australian Chairman Hamish McLennan joined the show to discuss why Eddie Jones was signed as Wallabies coach for a second stint. And there's no doubt about it. The biggest news of the week in sporting circles has been Eddie Jones being appointed as Wallabies coach. Dave Rennie has been let go by Rugby Australia. So it's a five-year deal. We've been through the details. On the line is Rugby Australia chairman Hamish McLennan, who joins us, our special guest this morning. Good morning, Hamish. Morning, Matt. How are you, mate? Good, thank you. Why Eddie? He's the best coach in the world. He's an Aussie. He's a classic Sydney sider. He understands rugby and our competitive uh, dynamic here locally and up in Queensland and he'll deliver results for us, big results. How much did you have your eyes on Eddie uh, leading into the decision by English Rugby Football Union? You wouldn't have known what they were going to do, but did you have him on the radar anyway? Yeah, he was absolutely on the radar. So we've been quite public saying we've been talking to him since November of... uh, 2021 and but we we were thinking about 24 onwards so we've got the rugby world cup coming to australia in 27 so we thought he he could do the lines on the rugby world cup and then we literally fell off our chair uh when he got cut by the rfu and so we then had a poor spring tour and you know we didn't perform to our expectations and so we just thought let's so to capture uh, Eddie and get him in for 23, give ourselves the best opportunity to win in 23. So if he wasn't cut by England, would Dave Rennie still be coach, Hamish? Yes, he would. And how did that go down with those discussions that you had with Dave? Oh, look, it's, it's 
you know, look, it's very difficult. And Dave's a very honourable, good guy. But uh, we, we all live by the scoreboard and everything that we do in life. And so he was at 37, 38% win ratio. He'd, he'd actually made some great strides with the team. But uh, Eddie was at 73% uh, in England. And that was after, you know, um, not, not the best of sort of autumn tours for himself. So we we just sort of decided that we had to sort of reinvigorate the Wallaby camp. And also, as you know, uh, Eddie's also looking after the, the Wallaroos or overseeing that program. So we just felt that it was an opportunity too good to miss. And and quite frankly, and that's, that's the thing when you look at Dave and all the coaches, it's very hard to secure coaches out of cycle. They tend to go for three or four year blocks leading into World Cup. So Eddie got cut loose and we jumped on him. How did the players react to this and how much impact or how much did you talk to the players about the decision that was that was being taken? Oh, we, we didn't consult them at all. So, um, you know, it was a decision made by the board. So we oversee and administer the whole game. So uh, the board felt that it was the right thing to do and it was the unanimous decision of the board to hire Eddie. Um, I think... Uh, some players are a little bit unsettled. Others are really up for it. I've spoken to a couple of them, um, and you know the feedback's positive. But that, that, don't forget, um, you know, players players want to get selected by coaches, and then you sort of change you change that dynamic, which I actually think is quite healthy in terms of just sort of revving them all up. And so there, there will be change. There'll be continued change at RA on the administration side, who Eddie's. Uh, decides to sort of select so we, we live in a very fluid world um but look on the whole it was the right thing to do and i'm very comfortable with the decision what are the logistics of eddie coming coming back into the fold i know that he's also got the japanese consultancy job that he'll continue to do and that was part of his deal with england rugby union as well so when does he get the feet on the ground sunday week at the sydney seventh and so uh, he will attend that event, so he flies back on Sunday morning and he's coming out to, to watch a few of the games. So, you know, if, if you're in the vicinity, that'll be an amazing tournament too. So just just come along. Uh, it's a, a Friday, Saturday, Sunday event. It'll be fantastic. 28 teams will be uh, will be playing in that global tournament in Sydney. And so um, the logistics are we're putting him on a plane and he'll be he'll be down here in just over a week. And you and I both know that you know if you're in the vicinity of Eddie, you know that you know that there's noise around him. How much when you did this deal? Obviously, everything's focused towards success on the field. We we get that, but you know what Eddie brings yeah. as well, and very different personalities to Dave Rennie. And nothing against Dave, but Dave Rennie's not a salesman in the same way that Eddie Jones is. So, did that play any part? in your thinking because you know and as chairman of rugby australia you're trying to get this game back on people's lips back in on the on the front and back pages of the newspapers and eddie's going to deliver that for you well i i, I would argue we've actually got it on everyone's lips now. already i mean it's yep. just been wall-to-wall coverage everywhere so look it, it actually wasn't the main driver. It doesn't hurt. Um, I, I like the fact that Eddie's such a strong advocate for the game and the more people we have promoting the game and uh, and, and what we're doing, it, it's, it's obviously a really good thing for us. So um, it, it certainly helps you understand that at grassroots level, you really need to talk the game up. Um, but the most important thing is getting winning Wallabies. That will provide the best coverage that we could, we could ever have. And he'll do that for us.
uh, the focus on finances of the game has been very solid over the past few years, and obviously you've been front and centre at that. Eddie doesn't come cheap, yeah. and you've now got a coach that you've had to park until the end of the World Cup. How do you manage the finances, and is it worth the investment of the two payments that you're going to have running simultaneously? The, the goal for rugby in Australia, we, you know, we, we make, you know, don't hold me to the exact number, $120 million in revenue. The goal is to make it 200 and 250 million over the next sort of five five years. So well, I'm not looking for sort of um, incremental change. I don't want to add another sort of five million dollars worth of revenue. I want to. I really want to accelerate it. So you got to make big calls. And and the easiest thing for us to do, for myself to do, would just be keep everything um, as it is, the status quo. And so we're taking big swings, but we've. We've reduced, so in 2020 when I started, we lost uh, over $25 million. $7 million last year was the loss, and then we'll make a profit this year. So everything's heading in the, in the right direction, but it just shows you how difficult it is to sort of spin all these plates. But um, it's an investment that we're worth taking. Um, Eddie will provide great value um, if and when we start winning at a Wallaby and a Walla, Wallaroo level. So it's it's actually a good investment for us, and I'm very comfortable with it. Yeah, and the if and when, just on that, I, I played some audio just earlier because when this announcement dropped, Hamish, I, I was of the opinion straight away that this is all about 2023 Rugby World Cup. I mean, that's number one target. It's a five-year deal, and there's more off the back of it. But success at the Rugby World Cup is what this is all about. And you know what the question's going to be. What if Eddie doesn't deliver success at the Rugby World Cup? Well, look, you you can't predict the future, but where we got to at a board level was uh, the short term is the long term at the moment. And so we had to focus on who was going to deliver us the best chance of doing well uh, at the 23 World Cup. So just look at the stats, take the emotion and, you know, who who all the coaches are out of it. We think on paper, when you look at Eddie's results, he'll give us a better result. Um, and we also have to think more long-term. So my criticism of rugby uh, administration in the past, it became very short-term thinking. So you can't say to Eddie, oh, look, we'll, uh, we'll take you for this year and then we'll reevaluate our options for next year. You've got to start putting markers down for the long-term. So we've got the Lions in 25, we've got the World Cup in 27 back here. Um, and... You know, we've got to back him over the long term. And look, we we backed Dave for over three years. We're very public in our support. What what changed was Eddie got cut by the RFU, and we would have been dumb not to talk to him and then reevaluate reevaluate our position. Had had Dave won five out of five uh, in the spring tour, or four out of five, if we'd beaten France and uh, and Ireland, the top two nations in the world, which which arguably we should have won those games. David still be there. What about the Italy game? Oh, what about the Italy game? Don't, don't get me started. <laughs> that, that was just a nightmare. I was there. So disappointing. You know, it was sort of a strategy that didn't pay off. But, but, but did that, know, never but did that change your thinking on Dave Rennie? Did it put a pause? Uh, look, look the, media, the media has speculated a lot about that. I mean, had we won France or Ireland and still lost Italy? I mean, look, it, Dave, yeah. Dave's view was it's back a whole lot of young players um, and, and we'll sort of bench some of the more experienced ones. Uh, you, know, that, you, know, it, uh, you know, we probably could have lived with that because you really need to perform against France and Ireland. And, you know, we just didn't win those games. So... 
unfortunately, you know, it was um, you know, it was a difficult decision, but at the end of the day, I think it's the right one that was made with Eddie. And a final one. You've been generous with your time. I appreciate it. A final one. So rugby union versus rugby league. There's already been some tit for tat with Eddie back and forth in the papers and, and out there with Peter Volandis. Is it gloves off now against the NRL on all fronts? You're going to take them on on all fronts, including having a look at their player ranks. Uh, look, we are, and uh, we are going to look at their player ranks, but uh, the, the, the two codes will coexist forever, and they'll ebb and flow, and so I think uh, the NRL have done a better job of marketing and packaging the game up, but we're two completely different games, and so we're international, you know, you can play in Paris either to the Olympics, at the Olympics for Australia, um, or go to the Rugby World Cup if you're a player, and uh, I just think we're very, very different, different style uh, of play and obviously highly differentiated. So um, I think there'll be competitive rivalry and tension. I think it's great for the readers and the listeners. Times are changing, Hamish. Appreciate your, your time this morning and uh, we will catch up again soon. Back to chat, Matt. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another edition of The Best of Mornings with Matt White. We'll be back Monday morning from 9am.